So why did war break out in 1939? Or to put the question that really puzzles us and never seems to get answered, how on earth did Hitler's Nazi Third Reich ever find the money to build a vast army and air force and launch a war in 1939? After all, Germany was supposed to be financially crippled after the First World War, and that was without taking into account the profound financial collapse that spread around the world after the Wall Street crash in October 1929. Now, you'll often hear it said that Hitler rebuilt his economy by rearming. But you can't start rearming without any money, and you can't do it that quickly. And how, in the middle of the 1930s Great Depression, Hitler's Third Reich could afford to rearm itself with the latest technology and then launch war on an enormous scale is a fundamental mystery. But what we've been starting to discover is that the answer begins in the United States of America. It's good to see you at the History Café. Thanks for joining us. This is where we come to give a new take on history. We revisit well-known stories that have got stuck in our collective memory, but just don't look right anymore. I'm Penelope Middlebow. And I'm John Rosebank, and I suppose we have the best job in the world. I think we do. We take the latest research and we ask the questions that nobody else seems to, and we put it all into stories everyone can enjoy. So find yourself a coffee, pull up a chair, and let's see where we end up. What we discovered in our last conversation was that this is a story that really begins in the First World War. The British had financed their grisly war on the battlefields of Flanders and other places too with loans from America. They, in turn, the British, had loaned huge sums to Russia and France. Now, by 1917, afraid that the Germans might win and that all these various loans would never be repaid, the Americans had weighed in on the British and French side. But unlike any conflict before, the Americans bluntly refused to ally with the people they were fighting alongside, mainly to protect their own loans, and refused to share any of their resources. If they wanted any more money, it was more loans or nothing. The result was that by 1918, American industry, which was charging profit margins of up to 80%, 80%, had grown, not surprisingly, enormously wealthy. And so had the American government. But the economies of Europe were as good as bankrupt. Well, the American government then went on lending massive sums of money into the early 1920s as Britain and France had tried to piece their economies back together. Well, there's no agreement on the figures, as you may well imagine if you've ever met an economist. Or more precisely... Two economists. <laughs> Two economists, yeah. <laughs> By 1923, that's five years after the end of the war, the British had ended up something like $4.4 billion in debt to the American government. And that's just the money they owed to the US government, not the private loans from before 1917. Well, it's something like $89 billion in today's money. Though it depends which economist you ask. Yeah, it does. Now, that doesn't sound like an impossible sum of money. Well, it does to me, but anyway, not to a government. Particularly as the pound was then worth more than $4. Not like the, what, $1.30 or something it is today? And in fact, Britain itself was owed considerably more than $4.4 billion by the French, the Russians and the other nations it had in turn loaned money to not having had any cash of its own to give, as Britain had done in previous wars, it had had to loan them the money. In practice, 
the amount the British and everyone else were expected to pay, including interest, was far more than their war-torn economies would be able to afford for the far foreseeable future. So now you can see that from 1918, intergovernmental debts were the big political issue. As economic historians Adam Tooze and Jamie Martin have argued, the First World War initiated an unprecedented, quote, entanglement between war and economics. Well, we might more broadly say that it was an entanglement between international relations and economics. Economics, dark art that it is, had been transformed into a central preoccupation of governments to an extent that it really never had been before. The point was put very bluntly by the British economist Maynard Keynes. In 1919, he brought out a book entitled The Economic Consequences of the Peace. Historian Adam Tooze calls it a, quote, ferocious polemic. Well, it was certainly an international bestseller. Even Lenin and Trotsky recommended people read it. Well, among much else, Keynes commented that the Americans had arrived at the Paris Peace Conference in 1919 without any financial ideas about the future at all. No proposals. He also bitterly criticised the British and French for their short-sighted ignorance over the economic consequences of what they were negotiating. He called the resulting Treaty of Versailles with Germany as, quote, one of the most serious acts of political unwisdom for which our statesmen have ever been responsible. And ever since, economists have argued over Keynes' analysis. Well, they would. They're economists. (laughs) OK, we can stop them. We can stop bashing economists. But Keynes was the Cambridge Don, who'd been seconded to the British Treasury through the war. And then he'd sat in at the peace talks in 1919. He was at that time, clearly, one of the leading economic thinkers in the world. And the basic point Keynes made is pretty much beyond dispute. The debts that Britain, France and the others faced had not been calculated like any normal debt on what they could afford to pay. There was, in fact, a stark possibility that they would simply never be able to pay them. They would remain forever in debt, draining money in interest to the United States. By the end of 1919, the French were being quoted interest rates of 12% for private American loans. That's something like four times the normal interest rate at that period. And Keynes was saying that if the British, French and Germans went on trying to pay these ridiculous sums, they would simply go bankrupt. Well, Keynes' solution was as stark and surprising as it was simple. The First World War had ended with Britain and France enormously in debt to the Americans. The British economist Maynard Keynes, who was perhaps the world's leading economist at the time, had walked out of the peace talks in despair, loudly proclaiming that what was going on was all lunacy. The world would end up mired in debt and conflict for decades to come. So what was Keynes' solution? Aha! In his 1919 book, The Economic Consequences of the Peace, which became a bestseller, as John was saying, Keynes simply proposed that all the governments should forget about the debts they owed each other. Just cancel them. 
Overall, he calculated that at that point in 1919, the Americans would lose about £1.7 billion, the British would lose about £650 million. But Keynes' point was that the world could then get back to economic normality. And in practice, he argued that everyone would, within a few years, be much better off. And of course, that's an argument that those who nowadays oppose forgiving developing nations' debts need to hear. If only you forgive their debts, everybody ends up being better off. If only people knew more history. If only they did, John. As we shall see over and over again in these podcasts. What, why we do them. What Keynes doesn't tell his readers is that the reason he'd quit the Paris Peace Conference was that he had already put this plan forward there. Now, Keynes was a world authority, and pretty much everybody at the conference had agreed that his proposal was by far the most practical way forward. They'd all agreed. They'd all agreed, except the American government, which had turned it down flat. They were going to get their money at whatever cost to the rest of the world in poverty and economic confusion. Even the Manhattan Bank, J.P. Morgan, which had negotiated much of the British debt in the early part of the war, told the US Treasury they were mad to continue in this way. The original draft of the Morgan letter, written in March 1919, just a month or six weeks into the peace conference, had pleaded... Quotes, in the hands of the Secretary of the Treasury today is the power to conclude a real and lasting peace. If he fails to exercise that power, no one can foresee the consequences. Consequences with almost as terrible results for America as for the rest of the world. One of the American lawyers at Versailles, one J. Foster Dulles, who will have, as we shall see, a much larger part in this story also understood that saddling Europe with unpayable debt was in nobody's interest, including the Americans. In 1920, with the debt problem still being haggled over by an international commission, Dulles wrote to the London Times. In Dulles' view, quotes, the whole operation is akin to that of a settlement in which the creditors recognise that their own interest lies in preserving and enhancing the economic vitality of their debtor. Look, let's say all that again. Maynard Keynes, J.P. Morgan, Foster Dulles and plenty of other people at the Paris conference who knew what they were talking about agreed that there was no point at all in trying to enforce debts in a way that the debtors could not pay. It would only lead to financial chaos. Everybody would be worse off. But the American Congress insisted that it was going to get its money back from the French and British no matter what the consequences for anyone. End of story. The American president, Woodrow Wilson, didn't want to know about Europe's problems. How their former allies across the Atlantic... Uh, not, not allies, of course. <laughs> no, not allies. Fighting partners. They yeah. wouldn't ally with them. Yeah. How their former fighting partners across the Atlantic paid their debts was, well, their problem. But pay they would. They'd have to knuckle down to years of, I know, austerity. Though how this was supposed to produce dollars to pay the debt was anybody's guess. It's the whole thing, isn't it? You cut the economy in order to make it grow. <laughs> Governments are always saying it. It's been tried over and over again, over again. Always ends up with the same thing. Paying higher taxes. Always has done, always will do, if only they knew their history. The solution the French favoured, for very obvious reasons, was to place the entire blame for the First World War onto Germany. 
in what became a notorious clause, the War Guilt Clause, Clause 231 of the Treaty of Versailles, this is what they said. The Allied and Associated Governments affirm, and Germany accepts, the responsibility of Germany and her allies for causing all the loss and damage to which the Allied and Associated Governments and their nationals have been subjected. All the loss and damage. That's the key part. It was, of course, completely unjust. As we see in our series in 1914, the British, among others, shared a very large share of the blame for the outbreak of the First World War. The French point was that if the Germans were made to carry the blame for the war, then they could be made to pay for all the loss and damage the war had caused. Which, of course, in hard-nosed reality, meant all the debts that France and Britain had incurred to America in these loans. In 1921, after two years of embittered negotiation, Germany was presented with a bill for what were termed reparations. It was set at $33 billion. So it was at about eight times what the British were supposed to owe the Americans at the time. It was an astronomical figure that was supposed to be paid in a rather complicated arrangement of annual instalments including both cash and goods. It was meant to be paid to France and Britain. And then they would supposedly be able to pay off their debts to each other and finally, most important, their debts to the Americans. On paper, it may have looked like a solution. But of course, as Maynard Keynes pointed out straight away, it was no solution at all. There wasn't the slightest possibility that Germany would ever be able to pay back the costs of everybody's war. Though, as you'd expect, historians and economists have argued about that ever since. Perhaps more realistically, there was very little chance that even if they could find a way to afford it, the new German governments after the war would be willing to wreck their economy over several generations, many generations, in order to pay off the guilt of the now deposed Kaiser, placate the angry French and satisfy the greed of the Americans. Reparations were always going to be a political and financial disaster. As Keynes said, no solution at all. So this was the origin of the crazy, often sickening economic switchback that overtook the world in the 1920s and 1930s. Proper recovery from the war was impossible because the Americans were attempting to suck every last cent out of Europe. We don't need to go into all the ups and downs of the next decade. The 1920s, hmm. The Germans repeatedly complained that they couldn't pay. Many economists and historians have written that they protested rather too much. But there was no denying what the Americans were doing. By profiteering during the war and holding everyone else's noses to the debts they'd run up, the Americans had decisively seized unprecedented economic power over the entire world. The peace treaties of 1919 and the reparations negotiations that followed left Britain and France deeply in debt to America and Germany even more deeply in debt to them. The British government seriously considered just cancelling everyone else's debts to them. Perhaps they'd read Maynard Keynes' book. (laughs) They had been in their treasury. The hope was that that might shame the Americans into doing the same thing. You know, set a good example. Some chance of that. But it became quickly clear that the Americans would do no such thing. So then did the British stop that idea? Yeah, they didn't do it. 
In January 1923, the British Chancellor of the Exchequer, Stanley Baldwin, and the Governor of the Bank of England, Montague Norman, a very bizarre character whom we shall hear a great deal more about, boarded a transatlantic liner to Washington. According to Lloyd George, who until recently had been Prime Minister, they were like rabbits caught by a weasel. The American Treasury Secretary, Andrew Mellon, set out his starting position, asking for as much as he dare in the hope of compromising on the best deal he could get on those wartime debts. What sort of haggling in a market? Like haggling in a market. He demanded an interest rate on the British wartime debt of 3.3%, much more than you would expect, paid over 62 years, by which time the Brits would have forked out not just the original $4 billion or so, but over $11 billion to the Americans. And to Mellon's complete astonishment, Baldwin said he thought that was... Fair. <laughs> so British, isn't it? And shook hands. And shook hands, yes. <laughs> but the British government later explained that it was, well, important that the British kept their honour and their reputation <laughs> as decent chaps. Decent oh, chaps. Oh, my goodness. This was, of course, all about keeping up the reputation of London as the world's financial centre. Yes, and can't it, renege on your debts. And impoverishing everybody else in Britain, but keeping up the reputation of the London city of naturally, naturally. Never the bankers who pay the bill. Over the years, countries buckled under to the Americans one by one and signed up to paying whatever the Americans wanted on whatever terms they could get. Nobody else's terms were anything like as bad as the Brits, of course, but they were still pretty onerous. I thought we had a special relationship. (laughs) Yeah, our special relationship is that they exploit us. Always has been, always will be. The British did their best to pay at least some of the money the Americans demanded. The French paid even less. But then many Americans were embarrassed about asking the French to repay anything. After all, as we saw in our last discussion, the United States only existed at all because the French had generously paid for the War of Independence. Not in loans, but gifts. They'd given them the money, which is what you did in wars until the First World War, when the Americans refused to do it. However, the Americans regarded their former First World War fighting comrades, not allies, but fighting comrades, especially the British, with a distinct lack of sympathy. The homes for heroes, the council houses the Brits had promised to the men who'd fought in the trenches, were never built. Instead, by 1921, nearly a quarter of British men were out of work. In 1926, British economic problems were so bad that the country experienced its own, and so far only, general strike. In 1927, the Germans slapped tariffs on imports, import duties, in a bid to try to revive their economy. Because they were still suffering then. Yeah, but that just hit the British, who'd always exported a lot of stuff to Germany. As Keynes had predicted, there was economic chaos. There were bouts of serious inflation. Old Georges Clemenceau, the French Prime Minister at the end of the war, came out of retirement and sailed to New York to plead with ordinary Americans for some common sense. Why did you go to war, he wanted to know. Well, everybody knew the answer to that. The Americans had gone to war in order to make sure their loans were repaid. In 1921, the Senate had voted that it would not cancel a cent of its claims on Europe. And that was that. We're not making this up. (laughs) (laughs) Certainly not. Well, here's the irony, which turns out to be central to this whole story. It dawned on the Americans that, well, if they invested in reviving the German economy... This is, this is really crazy. <laughs> then not only would American banks and businesses earn handsome returns on the German economy, Europe's largest economy, but the Germans would then be in a position to pay their reparations to the British and French. 
who would then in turn be able to pay the money they owed to the Americans. So they get yeah. paid twice. Yeah, so what you do is you make the Germans, who after had lost the war and had been blamed for the war, you make, make, them the, rich. make them rich, but you keep the British and French, who supposedly won the war... For the Americans. For the Americans. For American money. For American money. You keep them poor. Justice, it was not. Enormously profitable for the Americans, it certainly was. So let's just say that all again so we've got it clear. Make the Germans who'd lost the war rich, keep the British and French who supposedly won the war for the Americans' money poor, and that way the Americans would get their money back twice. Twice, in fact. Yeah, twice. Bingo. Well, under new agreements known as the Dawes Plan of 1924 and the Young Plan of 1929, the Americans agreed that the Germans would pay much less than the original $33 billion in reparations and have much longer to pay them. As we shall see, that suited American businesses very well indeed. Conventional textbooks don't look under the political surface of the American Dawes and Young plans. But when you do, you see that what this was really about was opening the German market to private American firms. As we saw in our last conversation, American firms like Ford and General Motors, ITT and Standard Oil were queuing up to get into Germany. And not only businesses manufacturing cars or communications or selling oil, but also financial institutions. American banks were lending to German banks on expensive short terms so that the Germans could make long-term loans to German industry to get it going again. In fact, half of the money in German banks came from abroad. I suppose you'd have to say that American businesses overflowing with cash from the First World War were also investing in Canada, Cuba or Chile. In fact, much more than they were in Germany. They were also buying up companies and opening factories and offices in Britain and France and wherever else they could. South America as well, as we shall see. But within Europe, it was Germany that attracted far and away the most American capital. It was because it was the largest market. Also because Republican administrations in the 1920s actively discouraged any loans, for example, to France until they had at least agreed the terms on which they were paid back their wartime debts to the US government. Anyway, the upshot of all this was that in the 1920s, the German economy began to flourish, while the British and French economies continued to struggle. So what we need to do now is take a closer look at those American companies who got into Germany and whom we met in our last discussion. Because now we're beginning to understand why Germany had become such a great market for them. When you look more closely at these companies, you notice something very intriguing these companies were completely tangled up with each other. OK, let's take some examples. Let's take Walter Teagle, who was president of Standard Oil, but he was an old friend of Henry Ford's from the days before either of them was rich or famous. Teagle used to remind Ford that he once called at Ford's garage in the days when he, Teagle, was a travelling salesman flogging gasoline contracts. Yeah, in fact, he found Ford fixing up an old Winton, which were cars, I don't know, they, they went out of business in 1924, but he was fixing up an old Winton. Ford later confessed the old banger wasn't even his. He was fitting it up, <laughs> he was so poor in those days. <laughs> Later, Teagle would go grouse shooting with Hermann Schmitz. Now, he was the financial advisor of the German chemical giant IG Farben. He'd originally, in fact, been hired by Karl Bosch, a soon-to-be-the-German giant company at Bosch Electronics. Teagle was also a friend of Sosthenes Ben of ITT. 
Ben's German operation was run by the lawyer Gerhard Westrich. In fact, he'd been a German spy in the USA during the Great War. He'd been only discovered when he accidentally left a briefcase full of his documents on a subway train. Are you keeping up with this? <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> the point is that all these guys have for years and years been connected with each other. Westrich, you remember Ben's lawyer. And the spy. Yeah. His legal firm in Germany also represented Ford, Standard Oil and IG Farben. In Germany. In Germany, yeah. Westrich's legal business partner was Heinrich Albert. Who was, in fact, chair of Ford Germany. <laughs> 15% of Ford Germany was owned by IG Farben. IG Farben, in fact, 42% by the middle of the war. Edsel Ford, that's Henry Ford's son, was a director of IG Farben, or at least of their American subsidiary, and one of his board members on I.G. Farben's American subsidiary, one was of his board members Walter there was... Teagle. Walter Teagle. And so round and round we Ray go. go. Yeah. Now, maybe we should just notice that Charles Hyam was wrong in his book, which we mentioned in our previous discussion, Trading with the Enemy. He was wrong to suggest that this was all some kind of mafia-like fraternity. There were companies that invested in Germany that were outside this friendly network. General Motors, which became the largest vehicle maker in Germany, seems to have been quite separate. IBM, the enormously successful business machines outfit with its maverick CEO Thomas Watson, also seems to have been out on its own. But if you get back to this main group, at the heart of it was the high society New York legal firm of Sullivan and Cromwell, which by the 1920s was the most successful legal firm in the world. Vestrick and Albert, who we've just been talking about, were in fact their German partners. So while Vestrick and Albert were representing Ford and all the rest of them in Germany, Sullivan and Cromwell were representing Bosch, IG Farben and so on in the States. The key partner of this legal firm, Sullivan and Cromwell in New York, turns out to be J. Foster Dulles, the lawyer we've met before. Dulles was in fact a close associate of J.D. Rockefeller, the world's first billionaire and founder of Teagle's company, Standard Oil. Now, Foster Dulles was and remains one of American history's most enigmatic but important figures. In fact, he'd later be voted by Time magazine the most boring man in America. Anyway, the important thing for us is that in the 1920s, Dulles made a fortune for himself and for the legal firm in America, Sullivan and Cromwell, by negotiating more and more American loans to Germany. Now, you recall, he had criticised the settlement at the end of the war for saddling the European nations with unpayable debts. Well, it gets to be obvious that what he had meant was he didn't want to saddle the European nations with heavy intergovernment debts, because that would only mean that they'd not be able to pay for the expensive private loans that Dulles was negotiating for his clients. Well, that was all sorted out in 1924 because the Dawes Commission, you may remember, reduced the reparations that the Germans were expected to pay and gave, them, three billion. And gave them much longer to come up with the cash. So well, this is something that everyone has always thought was a good thing, this Dawes Commission. Yeah, that it reduced the debt burden on the Germans. In fact, it did exactly the opposite. Because who do we find on the Dawes Commission? We find, well, Charles Dawes. He was a Chicago banker, of course. But his legal counsel at the talks was, well, three guesses. Foster Dulles. Foster Dulles. So Dulles now launched a massively lucrative career organising private loans to Germany. 
kicked off by who else but J.P. Morgan. The bank who'd been against it all in the first place yeah. at the peace conference. <laughs> Indeed. Who loaned $200 million to the German government. In fact, from 1924 to 1931, Dulles arranged more than a billion dollars in private loans to Germany, often falsely claiming that they were being offered under the auspices of the Dawes Agreement with the US government. By 1926, Dulles was negotiating so much business that the contracts were not even being checked for accuracy. He found one little Bavarian hamlet, which thought it was borrowing $125,000 for some local improvements. Somehow I found it had ended up borrowing $3 million from American financiers. And the joke was that once contracts had been signed, the banks who'd loaned the money sold the debts on to the general American public. So when, as must all too often have been inevitable, many of them could not be repaid, neither the legal firms Sullivan and Cromwell nor the American banks lost a cent. Just the poor John and Jane Doe's. Not unlike the subprime scam, of course, that caused the financial crash of 2007. In fact, Fuster Dulles was defying official guidelines and failing to notify the government of the loans he was negotiating. It was notably the case, for example, when in December 1924, he organised a large loan to the German Krupp Steel Company. Well, he and everyone else knew that the money would be used to manufacture weapons in defiance of the peace terms negotiated at Versailles. Well, he didn't care. Now, that example shows that we're beginning to piece together the solution to the puzzle that started us on this journey. We're beginning to understand why the American firms, who would eventually be at the heart of the Nazi war machine, ended up in Germany in the first place. In 1945, Foster Dulles who was then trying to build a post-war career as a politician and international statesman, commented that the Americans who'd invested in and loaned to Germany after the First World War, quote, had built up within Germany a machinery which was intended to enable Germany to pay reparations, but which in fact enabled Germany to wage the most destructive war of all time. Well, you can only say that that had been obvious to plenty of people at the time. Lending money to Krupp's they build weapons with it. Fact was that Foster Dulles and his friends hadn't cared. Crocodile tears in 1945 don't make any kind of amends. Never trust your morals or your nation. To a businessman. What was going on in the 1920s was not just a question of individual American firms that chose to invest in Germany in the years after the First World War. Nor was it a conspiracy. It was a financial situation knowingly created by American politicians and financiers in which American companies were enabled to exploit the reconstruction of war-wrecked European economies for their own profit. The nations of Europe, and especially Germany, the biggest European economy, fell deeper and deeper into debt to the Americans. And some of Germany's most significant companies actually passed under American control. Meanwhile, the Americans convinced themselves that they were going to make cars and lorries and sell oil and telephones and lend to German towns and villages and sit on top of an exponentially growing source of eternal wealth. How very wrong they were, as we shall see next time at the History Café. There are nearly a hundred podcasts at the History Café, all of them still as new as the day they were recorded. Go to our website, historycafe.org, and you can get a rundown on the research we've done and plenty of leads to follow if you still want more. You'll find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and every other platform you can think of. Just look out for History Cafe Podcast with John and Penelope. If it's your thing, 
follow us on Instagram and what used to be Twitter at History Cafe Pod. And ask your friends to join us too. Thank you.